Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Fellow music nerds, welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, folks, and welcome to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Today's guest is the legendary Canadian singer and songwriter Sylvia Tyson. Known to many of you as the incredible vocalist in the classic folk duo Ian and Sylvia, Sylvia started writing songs way back in the early 60s, in fact, in a bathtub. And her first song that she ever wrote, uh, which is called You Were On My Mind, is strangely and amazingly one of her best loved and most covered songs. It's quite an accomplishment for a young Ontario girl who moved to Toronto in her late teens to pursue a dream of a career in folk music. Sylvia's career has seen some interesting twists and turns as her early partnership with Ian Tyson brought them fame in Canada. And with a move to New York in the early 60s, they were thrust right into that folk scene that was based around Greenwich Village and were even picked up by the iconic manager, Albert Grossman, who was also managing Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary at the time. Ian and Sylvia's first records are beautifully recorded and performed sparse folk duos, but as their career and writing prowess progressed, they jumped into the Nashville studio scene of the 60s, which is, as many of you listeners know, is near and dear to my heart. And they were right in the, right in the heart of it uh, in, with the Music Row A-team and playing with the likes of Ben Keith, Kenny Buttry, Charlie McCoy, and the rest of that crew. Their sound developed really the early incarnation of what would become known as as country rock, but they were right at the cutting edge of that sound. Ian and Sylvia sort of morphed also into the Great Speckled Bird, which was a a super group of sorts, uh, and featured some of the great Canadian session players, including guitarist extraordinaire Amos Garrett, who's an old pal of mine, and i got to get him on the show one of these days. 
Anyway, Ian and Sylvia eventually disbanded and split up, but they left an incredible legacy of recorded music. Sylvia moved back to Toronto and got off the road to raise a family and for the last 20 years or so has been living in Ontario and has a, a, a well, I, I shouldn't really say new because uh, it's not new at all. It's about 20 years old, but she's got a band that she's been working with for the last number of years called Quartet and making great records. Uh, it's a band that, that also features three other wonderful vocalists who I've worked with a bit over the years. And that was my connection to Sylvia Tyson. Once again, I'd like to thank you all out there for tuning in and listening. And as always, you can connect with me and the show at stevedawson.ca. Go ahead and make some comments there. And if you feel inclined to um, contribute financially, you can also do that at the website. Uh, you can go to any of the podcast episode pages and there's a donate button there that you can hit and chip in if you feel like it. Um, also, if you haven't done so already, please go over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us out and it's free, gets the word out there and you can share it and spread that around as well. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And now enjoy my conversation with Sylvia Tyson. Maybe we could start off talking a bit about um, songwriting. Um, sure. First off, I, I heard, no, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that You Were On My Mind was the first song that you ever wrote. Is that? Yes, it is. That's crazy. Um, yeah, Four Strong Winds was the first song Ian ever wrote. Can you tell me about the, the, the process for you? I'm really interested in the process for that song then in that case, because not having written before, like obviously you've been around music and you had experience singing and performing songs, but can you tell me about um, what you remember about the writing of that song? Well, um, actually, it's, it's kind of a, a part of uh, my music legend in that I wrote it in the bathtub in a suite in the Earl Hotel in Greenwich Village, New York. Really? Yeah. Uh, do you remember what year that was? I wrote it in 61, I think. Oh, wow, but it okay. Didn't get so, it didn't get published until '62 when we actually recorded it. Were you were you still under twenty at that point? You must have been under twenty then, right? No, no, I was over twenty. Oh, I, okay. I, uh, yeah, I was born in 1940. Um, so, so why the bathtub writing scenario? Well, as I say, it's part of the legend. It, it's the only place in that whole suite that the cockroaches wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wasn't taking a bath. <laughs> that was just like a, it was like a defensive shield. Yes. A cockroach protection thing. Yes, like, a, like in a bomb threat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're lying there in the bathtub writing a song? We're like, sitting there in the bathtub, yes. Okay. Uh, well, like with a guitar, or how did that all no, work? No, I mainly wrote it in my, in my head. Oh, wow. Okay. And it actually, when I started putting it to music, I wrote it on the auto harp. Right. That was sort of your main, your main instrument, I guess, At that back, point, back yes. in those days. Um, uh, like, was it fully formed in one bathtub sitting, or did you have it's, to work on yeah, it? Yeah, one of those things that songwriters pray for, where you actually write it in one sitting and don't change anything. Wow, that's crazy. Like, fully formed, like all the, all the lyrics, everything. Yep. Amazing. I mean, not that it didn't take a little time, but, uh, you know, it, it was done basically in one, one session. 
Were you trying to write something at that point? Like, is that why it suddenly came out, or was it just totally well, random? You have to understand, we were hanging out in the village, and, and we were hanging out with Bob Dylan quite a lot, and he was writing all these songs. And, you know, at that point, he was certainly not a star, and we figured if he could write songs, we could write songs. So. <laughs> yeah, and you were doing a bunch of his songs, too, I, I guess. We did, yes. Yeah. We were among the first to, to do his songs. Yeah. How has the writing, pro- just staying on the songwriting path for a minute, how, is, how has that process changed for you over the years? Because, um, well, obviously you don't always write songs in the bathtub, so um, no. what, what, what's, what's changed for you in that regard? Well, it's harder now because, uh, I don't know, you, uh, you start to second-guess yourself as you, as you get further and further into it. Yeah. Now, that song, You Were On My Mind, it's been covered by a lot of folks. Um, I just heard heard it on that new Steve Earle, Sean Colvin record, which is pretty cool. That's a great version of it, actually. I'm very pleased about that. It's the gift that keeps on giving. No kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Actually, the biggest uh, market for it seems to have been Italy. There was a translation uh, done back in the 60s. It was called Yoho on Mentete. Really? Yeah, and it continues to be used in God knows what all in television shows and commercials and you name it. Was there, I, I think that the, the guy who did the uh, Italian translation must be very active on his behalf. Wow. Um, was there like an Italian pop version of it at any Absolutely. point? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Actually, the biggest version in Europe was um, a Spanish group called the Barracudas, Los Barracudas. Uh-huh. Do you have a favorite uh, of, of versions of that song? Not really. I mean, as I say, various people have have recorded it. Yeah. Uh, I guess probably uh, the Wii Five, since they uh, basically made it a hit. Yeah, that was a that was a big one for them, right? In, it was a huge one. Yep, just about their only one, actually. Uh-huh. And they, uh huh. And they they made some changes in in the lyrics. I was very pleased with the Steve Earle Sean Colvin version that they did the original lyrics. But right. back in the, I did understand why the change. Why, Back wh- in the 60s, because the second verse is, uh, I got drunk and I got sick and I came home again. You didn't do that on the radio <laughs> in the 60s. <laughs> um, and Now nobody would bat an eyelash. So was that your publisher going to bat for you, or how did they come about recording that song? They, they heard my recording of it. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about that version? Um, I think you, I think the recording of it is, is 1962, from what, from what I can gather. Um, and I love the sound of it. Like the arrangement, it's kind of got like a lead belly groove to the guitar. Yeah, 12 string and, yeah. and auto harp. Yeah. Um, was that something you were going for? Like was lead belly an influence on you guys? Because it's really kind of prominent in that. In that. Well, I think that and, and sort of the general sort of jug band feel. Right. Okay. What do you remember about that session for recording the first song Nothing. that you ever wrote? Well, Nothing. actually... Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember, uh, we, we recorded various places mm-hmm. um, for Vanguard because they never actually had a studio until later. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, that would be the first album. We probably recorded it in the Brooklyn Masonic Temple. Oh, okay. I've heard about stuff going on. Is that where Dylan did his first record? Probably. Yeah. And, and they, were, they were doing a bunch of stuff there. Yeah, well, it was a big empty room with lots of ambience, and you yeah. use the, the stage for it. Yeah. Then, yeah. And in those days, would those sessions for those kind of songs have just been, like, I don't think there's other instruments on it, right? It's just you and Ian? I think that was a bass player. I don't know if Is Bill there? Lee played on that or not. But you would have done it live, obviously. It wouldn't have been. Oh, like yeah. A, yeah. 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 There wasn't a lot of editing going on. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
um, and was that song a hit for you guys as well, or was it not a hit really until... It was very popular, but it wasn't a single. Right. And that came out on your first record or your second record, I think? Second record. Okay. And Four Strong Winds was on that too, I think. Right. Oh, yeah, because your first record was... I don't think you did any it original It was all songs. traditional. Right. So yeah. tell me about that process for you. Like, how, how were you guys finding songs in the days when you were just doing cover tunes, uh, or whatever you'd call it, traditional, or whatever you'd refer to them as? Well, I, I was sort of the historian of the group, you know, oh, okay. I, I, I basically found those, except for any kind of bluesy stuff, uh, which Ian was really into. His, okay. his hero at that time was Big Bill Brunsey, I believe. Sure, yeah. What were you into at that point? Like, what were you... Well, uh, the Carter family, uh-huh. and um, Jeannie Ritchie. Right. And... Um, I mean, we both loved the the old timey bluegrass stuff. Uh huh. Any favorites in the bluegrass realm that you kept going back to? Well, well, Flat and Scruggs, of course, and, uh-huh. and Bill Monroe, and and um, Carter family, uh, and and uh, um, Stanley and, Brothers, um, and stuff like that too. Yeah, the Stanley Brothers definitely. Uh-huh. Actually, saw them live at one point. Did in you really? Sunset Park. Uh, yeah. Is that in New York? Where is that? No, it's uh, I think it's in Virginia, or it was a big bluegrass venue anyway. Was that and uh, we used to the... hang out all the time, and we, we played Washington, D.C. endlessly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were very popular in that area, and we used to hang out with the, the country gentlemen. Really? Yeah. Why Washington, D.C.? Was that kind of a... I guess that was sort it, of a bluegrass hotbed, right? Yeah. <laughs> they used to line up around the block at the, go, at, the, uh, at the cellar door. And were you playing with bluegrass? Like, were you sort of in the bluegrass scene in a way or something? Mm-hmm. Well, no. No, it's just... Well, we listened to all kinds of stuff, yeah. you know? I guess in those days it wasn't as... And as... the thing is that they, they were playing just down the street at the Shamrock Tavern, and we used to go and see them between our sets. And and would you play, like, would you tour with any of those bands, or was it just kind of like... No, no. Okay. No, actually, back in those days, we were, we were handled by um, ITA, which later became GAC. Uh-huh. And ITA was founded on the work of the Kingston Trio. Oh, okay. So and... basically it was university concerts. Right, so that would be that was your scene. You would go f- you, from college town to college town and play like university auditoriums. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah, if we were lucky, really? it might have been the gymnasium <laughs> <laughs> with, oh. with basketball speakers. Wow! Cool. <laughs> In the words of W. C. Fields, those were the good old days. I hope they never <laughs> come back. <laughs> Maybe we could just jump back to your like even before these days, like you're growing up in in Ontario. What what town uh-huh. were you from originally? Chatham, Ontario. Chatham. It's midway between Windsor and London. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I've been through there, but I, I don't know if I've ever stopped in Chatham. Um, that's what, generally what happens. <laughs> that's kind of the scene there, yeah. A lot of yeah. passers through. Um, what was going on there? Like, how, how were you from a musical family? And I was from a musical family, but they, their musical interests were not the same as mine. I, I kind of was an isolated case. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I knew what I wanted to do from the time I was about 15. Oh wow! Okay, and and uh, we had a rather enlightened um, librarian who brought in a lot of the folk music books. I think yeah. he was a bit of an old lefty, but it didn't occur to me at the time. <laughs> what was your family listening to? Like you said, that they're musical, but what was their background? My mother um, was classically trained as a pianist from the time she was like four or five years old. Okay, and she was a Chopin specialist. Okay, wow! So she was very skilled. Yeah, um, and she she was, at the time when I was a kid, she was an organist and choir leader. 
Oh, okay. Like in a church. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what about your dad? Was he musical as well? My dad was musical as well. I don't think he really had much musical training, but he played by ear very well. Uh-huh. And uh, his his favorite stuff was the uh, the uh, Bach organ music. Okay, so he was a keyboard player as well, and yeah, and they were very classically uh, oriented. W- was there pressure? absolutely? Although my mother had a whole collection of of uh, which I wish I still had of sheet music of of the popular songs of the twenties and thirties. Okay. And did you make your way through that kind of stuff, or was it? Not well, really... she would when she would have a glass of wine, she'd, <laughs> <laughs> she'd, she'd play some of that stuff, and we'd hear, uh, you know, Chloe. <laughs> okay, yeah, the boundaries would come down a little, and the. Actually, an interesting story. My parents met as piano and sheet music demonstrators for the T. Eaton Company in London, Ontario. Really, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly? With department store, you know, that's back when they demonstrated sheet music. So you would walk into an Eaton's there and they would be... They, they would have someone who would play the latest sheet music for you, and that would be piano sales as well, which my dad did. Really? So Eaton's yeah. would have pianos sitting there for sale? Yep. And, and have people selling sheet music as well. That's crazy. Yeah, sing, sing and play. My mother would sing and play the, uh, the songs. Uh-huh. And, so that, and that's how they met. And that was all like the popular music stuff. There, she wouldn't yeah. have been playing Yeah, I mean, you've seen it in black and white movies, I'm sure. Yeah, I just never realized that it was actually real. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's because a, that, that was the, the, the there wasn't the, the access to recorded music that there was. Yeah, that there, right. there is now. Yeah, that's how people learn songs, I guess, and heard yeah. songs. I mean, they might hear them on the radio, but they wouldn't have access to them. Right, right. And was that kind of a full time job that your that your mom had, or was that just kind of? It was probably her first major really? job. She she was uh, almost twenty years younger than my dad. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, how, like, in a growing up in that kind of setting, how were you exposed to the kind of music that you were listening to? Well, uh, Chatham was kind of country and western territory, uh-huh. so I heard a lot of Kitty Wells and and uh, you know all of the early early country singers, all of the classics. On the radio, would you have heard that? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, that's what mainly what they played on the radio, and it was not my primary interest. Um, and until I started hearing the occasional piece uh, of country music that was more traditionally influenced. Uh-huh. Um, so you mentioned Kitty Wells. Who were some of the other big ones for you that you remember from that time? Oh, gosh. That's really going back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could look at a list of names and quite well, they don't come instantly to mind. But that era, like sort of early 50s. Yeah. country, yeah, 50s. Late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, like and I had a girlfriend who was stuff. an absolute... Country nut. She loved oh, yeah. country music, so I was hearing it all the time. And so, were these... and I think that even though I, I I didn't write or or sing country stuff until much later, obviously I absorbed it. Yeah, yeah. And were these radio stations that were in Ontario, or were you getting this beamed up from the states? Well, the radio station I always listened to was out of Windsor, Ontario. Oh, really? And it was an R and B station. Okay, so you're hearing blues and. R&B. Yeah, but and you know early R and B, Mickey and Sylvia, uh-huh. um, and um, uh, Little Willie Johns, who was yeah, my nice. absolute favorite. Oh, I yeah. loved his voice. Stuff like Joe Tex too, and things like that. Or yeah, was it, okay. yeah, but but mainly most you know Detroit music. Right. Uh, there was a uh, Rosalie Tremblay was the music director for that Windsor station. I forget the call letters for mm-hmm. it, but it'd be easy to find. Mm-hmm. And it was. 
really where, as a teenager, we all listened to black music. And was that the stuff that really grabbed you even more than the country oh, music? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. I think, well, that and the fact that, you know, that was the popular music of the day because, you know, when you had your high school dances, uh, other than Pat Boone, which was never a big favorite of mine. <laughs> yeah, I'd go with Little Willie John over Pat Boone any day. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> And so were you starting to sing some of that stuff? Like, did you have a band when you were a kid no, or anything? No, no, I was totally on my own. You know, the, it, it was a very small town life for someone who's interested in music is pretty isolated in a little town like that. Yeah, yeah. And there might have been p- other people who were interested, but you were not, you didn't know them or were, were connected with them. Okay. You know, it was a, kind of a well-kept secret. Right. So you would just kind of sing around the house then? Yeah, and I had a, my parents one year got me a guitar from the Eaton's catalog. It nice. was uh, probably made of plywood. Yeah. And uh, Like a silver tone or something, maybe? No, it, it, it uh, had a two-color uh, silk screen on the front of it of a cowboy laughing oh, yeah. a cow. Yeah, And sure. it had the name Stampede on it. Nice. <laughs> uh, do you still have that? I wish I still had it. It disappeared <laughs> into the sands of time. Um, and did you take to the guitar? Like, was that something that you... I didn't know how to play, and I had no one to teach me. Okay. So uh, I simply tuned it to a chord and used a metal bar. Oh, you were a slide player. Nice. Yeah, but I didn't know that I was a slide player. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I wish I'd kept it up. <laughs> um, like, did somebody tell you to do that? Like, what what even made you go that far? No, I, I just knew that if it was in a chord, and I, it could make it a chord up the neck with this metal bar, that's all. That's crazy. So you kind of, like, invented slide guitar on your, in your own weird way. <laughs> yes, except I probably didn't slide that much. <laughs> right. And what about the auto harp? Was that something kicking around then, or was it... Did no, you, okay. that was uh, something that uh, Ian gave to me fairly early on when we were working together. Oh, uh, okay. Because I, I was a big fan of Maybell Carter's. Right. And and did when you heard the Carter family and you heard Maybell, were you aware of what she was playing, or did it just sound totally oh, yeah. mysterious? Oh, yeah. okay. So you'd seen pictures of her, probably. and Yeah. How did it go from that, where you're at home, you're hearing some of this music, you're singing at home, but not experienced in playing at all? I assume at some point you made your way to Toronto to start actually performing. Um, how did that happen? And, and Well, from the time I was 15 or 16 years old, I, I told my parents I was going to move to Toronto would be a folk singer. Oh, yeah, how did that go over? Uh, well, actually, it was fairly liberated for its day. Mm-hmm. And my my parents' response was, well, if it doesn't work out, you can always come home and get married. <laughs> uh, they had it all figured out for you. I think they figured I'd get over it. Yeah, well, that's I think that's what parents do, right? Yeah. So were you going on your own to Toronto and getting involved yes, in I music? Yes, I moved to there? Toronto by myself of uh, fall uh-huh. of 59. Okay. Do you remember how old you were at that point? 19. 19. Okay, so you're in Toronto and... So in, in 59, like, I've heard a lot about the folk scene in, in Toronto. I've talked to Bruce Colburn and Bernie, mm. fin- Bernie Finkelstein and a few others about it. Um, yeah, well, I predated them by a yeah, few years. Yeah, yeah. So 59, like, what was going on there musically? Was there even, a, a, like, was there a coffeehouse thing going on in Yorkville? Then? There was, uh, there were a couple of places. Uh, there was one that was literally called The Coffee House. Oh, really? Which showed you how many coffee houses there were. <laughs> And the Village Corner Club, okay, which was really the first kind of folky club, yeah, in Toronto. There were a couple of other places, but that was the main one. Okay, and uh, and I was introduced to 
Ian by a, a mutual friend mm-hmm. who had been married to the guy who was his boss where he was working as a commercial artist. Oh, okay. And so we got together mm-hmm. uh, and and threw a few tunes around. And yeah. he had been working, uh, first of all, with a, a, a man called Don Franks, who's quite a famous Canadian actor and, mm-hmm. and performer and singer, as a sort of a jazz duo. And then he had a partner called Noreen St. Pierre. It was a male-female thing, but her, her voice was very much in the soprano range. Yeah, so it was a huge gap. Yeah, it didn't, right. didn't work out that well. So we started doing a few things together and started uh, performing together. Uh, around, around Toronto, mostly in those... In and mainly house. Village Corner Club and a couple of other places. And we were, of course, featured at the very first Mariposa Folk Festival. Do you remember what year that was? I should. I mean, they had their 50th anniversary about three, four years ago. So, like, early... It was the very early. I think the only one earlier would have been Newport. Um, and so what was the what was the earliest, those early folk festivals, those Canadian folk festivals have really become something, but back in those days, was it just like a really small gathering, or what was the it vibe was a, there? It was a small thing uh, yeah. in the town of Aurelia, Ontario. Oh, right. Uh, it was a doctor and his wife. Who put it on? Who, who or, organized the thing, along with a few people from the music scene in, in Toronto, including us. Yeah. And it was an all-Canadian festival that first year. Okay. Do you remember who else played at it? I don't. Um, were you guys known at that point, Winston though? Winston and like... Mary Jane Young, they were a duo. Um, gosh, who else? Uh, probably David Whiffen. Uh, names you wouldn't oh, really? recognize. Uh, I know David Whiffen, yeah. Yeah. Were you guys known at that time, or like had you, had you not? We were known in, in Toronto. We were Kansas City stars, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you were kind of the headliners of that of that first we were among the headliners yeah uh-huh. and but you hadn't made a record yet no and so like how were you surviving in toronto like like i can't imagine this being a well, terribly uh, lucrative venture at this point it didn't pay much but rent was really cheap back really? then yeah yeah <laughs> not so much now no no <laughs> Um, Matter of fact, I constantly have calls from people wanting to talk to me about Yorkville, which I hardly experienced because I was playing down in the States. Right, yeah. And uh, they said, what do you think it was that drew all these amazing people to Yorkville? And I always say, cheap rent. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> were you working jobs and stuff to to scrape by at that point, or were you able to but, just kind of... Well, uh, when I first moved to Toronto, I was living way out in the West End, and I got a job in a jewelry store Okay. for about uh, six months, and yeah. then... As I started playing some of the clubs in Toronto with Ian, you know, yeah. for $25 a night, right. um, oh, I, I got a like, job. Sounds like uh, what they pay now, too. <laughs> yeah, again. <laughs> I got um, a job in a, uh, a downtown clothing store that sold very cheap, flashy clothes to very cheap, flashy ladies. Okay, yeah. And uh, got fired because I couldn't figure out how to work the uh, cash register. <laughs> yeah, that's important, I guess, in, in the retail world. But you have to understand that, that we didn't stick around Toronto that long. We went right. down to New York. Yeah. So so tell me about that. Like, um, you You must have at least had enough experience under your belt to feel like you could take on a, a newer, bigger city or, or something. Like, what was the... What was the driving force behind leaving Toronto for New York? Well, we, as I say, we we were pretty big stars in Toronto and and there, you know, across the, the certain area of Canada as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we thought, well, we're good enough to do that. We should be good enough to 
do it down there. You so, know, and the, so the first Joan the first Joan Baez album would come out, and there was yeah. a lot of excitement about that. And 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 so, in, with your popularity in Toronto and and Canada, had nobody approached you about making a record up here? Yeah, well, they they had, but you have to understand how primitive it was up here. Right. In fact, uh, three or four years later, we tried to record up here, and there was a um, a company. Uh, God, what were they called? They were infamous. <laughs> anyway, they said they had uh, they said they had two track recording. Yeah. And what they had was two Ampeg tape recorders stuck together. All oh, right. Yeah. Primitive. So but cool. it was pretty yeah. primitive. We couldn't yeah. use the material. Oh really? I mean, it was totally out of sync. So you so you, you feel like you had this thing going on, and you just figured like let's give this a, a spin down in New York and and see absolutely. What's going on and and okay. we made a list of uh, you know we checked out who managed yeah the various people that we admired in the business and, okay and uh, and decided we'd go around and see all of them. Went down with a friend who had a car yeah <laughs> and uh, one of the first places we ended up was um, in Albert Grossman's office on Central nice. Park West, which he was sharing with George Ween. And, and was he managing Dylan then, or just like Peter Paul No, he was managing, or? no, he managed Odetta and oh. Bob Gibson at that point. Okay, so he hadn't made his mark at all, really, aside no, from... not really. Aside from... No, he'd like, come from Chicago. Right. Um, and so what was, what was your first experience with Grossman like? We auditioned for him in the middle of the floor of this huge <laughs> first floor suite in really? Central Park West. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said, and I can quote you on this... Uh, I really like you, but I just find this trio, and I don't know how much time I'm going to have. And he was referring to Peter, Paul, and Mary, probably? Of course, yes. And, and of course, he and Milt Oaken had put that group together. Uh So did he eventually sign you? He did, right? Oh, he he did. He signed it because he, he, you know, we were pretty low maintenance and already formed. Right. So it was not a a big uh, jump to... And and this was this was before you were like in New York and and I mean you were there obviously but like before you'd really like played a bunch and stuff you just went straight to his office and just got went straight to his, we hadn't played awesome. in the states at all wow really yeah um, and so what did that mean like you signed with Grossman and that must have had some clout around the area like what was uh, did that help well he put us together with uh, with ITA International Talent Agency okay which as I say became GAC and then became I'm sure something else but yeah. it was the main folky yeah. talent age at that point. And they, they they had a map in their front office that had a pin for every every college and university in North America and it was a mass of red pins. <laughs> and they and booked they were them just all. Dialed right into it. Oh that's so As I cool. say they, their their work was based on what had developed from the Kingston trio. Right. Right. Um and so were you like, did you actually physically move to New York? You were live based and living there or were you just traveling so much that you didn't even live there? I did. You did. Okay. I, I found a place, a rent control place in the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian kept a place here. So we were back and forth. Okay. Were you around to see like that whole Greenwich folk scene oh, yeah. develop? Yeah. Yeah. And like, did you have some experiences with like Dave Van Ronk and those kind of guys that were sort oh, of like... Oh, Dave, was a good friend. Yeah. Okay. What do you remember yeah. about that guy? I love him. Uh, well, he kind of was the unofficial ambassador yeah. to Greenwich Village. You know, yeah. I mean, he was very generous. Okay. You know, um, he was always willing to, to help people out to find gigs and find places to stay. And, and of course, he taught guitar. I can't tell you how many people he taught guitar to. Oh, really? I didn't realize that he was a teacher. Oh, yeah. Okay. And would he actually book you gigs, too? Like, was he Oh, no. 
So okay, so he was no, like, it's just that he'd, he'd give he'd tip you off, right? Like you'd have yeah. to have the Van Ronk seal of approval, kind of thing. Or not even that so much as it, you know he'd do you a good turn. Did you have some favorite places to play in that? Well, uh, we were on the road a lot of the time uh-huh. during that period okay. because we were doing these. The as I mentioned, the college concerts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that were pretty well nonstop. Right. And you know, generally speaking, if 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 a, a folky performer was in New York, it's because they weren't working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and as a result, of course, the New York club owners took advantage of that because they knew that too. Right, but there was like a pretty healthy and regular scene going on with with Van. Oh Rock yeah, well, there's Gertie's Folk City. Yeah. Okay. Um. And and you guys played there a lot, I guess. And and not a lot, no. no but when you were in town, you once in a while. Uh huh. As uh, I say, that for pretty low wages, because they always knew that the reason you were there is because you weren't otherwise working. <laughs> nice. Was that around the time that you would have met Dylan too for the first time? Well, he was on the scene, yeah. you know, and, and he and Dave were friends, uh-huh. of course. Yeah, yeah. And Susie Rodlow was one of my best friends of all time. And they were going out, is that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you do shows with, with Dylan at that time or like? No, we did a, more... a town hall concert, uh, the Hootenanny at town hall. Uh-huh. That Dylan was on, and I, I'm trying to remember who else was on it. They have a poster here somewhere. And was he, like, I guess at that point he was sort of doing like half traditional stuff and half writing his own. He was yeah. just sort of and finding Woody his voice. Yeah, right. And there was also a lot of um, blues guys around there then, too. Uh-huh. Um, Mississippi John Hurd. I, well, he would have been a little later, I guess. But um, Well, he wasn't really in New York. Right. He, you know, um, he would play there, but yeah. I actually got to see. Um, uh, Cisco Houston perform at one Did you point. really? Yeah. That was a Gertie's Folk City. Do you remember much about that show? No. I remember he was very handsome. He looked like Clark Gable. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any favorite shows that you remember from seeing around that time that would have been like... Well, I remember um, seeing Simon and Garfunkel and they, they did the Gregorian chant. On really? Gertie's Folk City, yes. Was this like before they were doing... Paul Simon's original material, or yeah, it's just that Gertie's was the place to you know go and sit on sit in on on hoot night, you know. And so your relationship with with Albert Grossman, like, did he, um, you know, aside from booking you gigs, what kind of things were you were you getting from that relationship? Well, just mainly the work, you know. Um, I mean, we had a very good relationship with with Albert. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I'm. I very much defend him against any negative stuff that comes out about him because we always found him very good to work with and yeah. and very fair. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just reading Robbie Robertson's book right now, and he talks a lot about Grossman, of course, because he dealt with him a lot. And yeah, he seems, you know, in that book too, he seems like a, a, a fair guy, obviously looking out for his client above all else. But um, absolutely, that was kind of the cool thing about him, right? Yeah, yeah. He was very artist-oriented. Right. And, you know, I mean... It, it's that that um, separation between manager and agent that you have in the states is a very important one mm-hmm. because yeah. the agent doesn't work for you; he works basically for themselves and for the venues. Yes, and the manager's the guy breathing down their neck, making all yeah. this shit happen. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he had certain things in the contract that were extremely fair. For instance, if if if, if he was working through. Um, Another booker. Yeah, he that there was a thing in our contract that said 
that that no more than 15% could come off the top of what we did. Okay. So okay. that meant he would have to share his percentage with the other right. The other booker. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah. And did he eventually get you the deal, your record deal with um, Vanguard? Yeah, he was against it, actually. Was he? Why? He, he thought we should go with a more commercial label. Oh, so Vanguard was too folky. Yeah, and, and you know, it was very uh, insular. Okay, like it had a very small but dedicated following. Yeah, and, and yeah. He, their idea of, a, of a, a big ad splurge was to put an ad in the Evergreen Review. Okay. <laughs> and so what was he gunning for? Like, he wanted you on, like, CBS Warner or Brothers, I think, was his first choice. Yeah, and, and what happened there? Like, that just didn't work out, or he, he wasn't able to get a deal for you with that? Well, no, we wanted to go with Vanguard. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, we dug our heels in. Yeah. Um, because that was the folky label, you know. Right, so there was a lot of respect there, and you wanted that yeah. that clout and that respect. I get it. Yeah, and we were very fortunate all through our recording career that, that we basically recorded what we wanted. We never felt we had a lot of pressure on us to to come up with a bunch of commercial stuff. Right. You know? Yeah. So so you went into the studio, probably that Masonic Temple, to do your first record, which was basically traditional stuff that you'd been playing around the clubs and, yep. and developing. And then, um, so the second album comes out and you've, it, you, you've got songs of yours, uh, Four Strong Winds, of course, is, um, was that the name a, of the title? Yeah, the yeah. name of the album, yeah. I mean, that song has become one of the most legendary Canadian songs, but outside of Canada, too. Um, was that a hit for you guys at the time? In a moderate way, yes. Okay. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, yeah. So you were getting radio airplay and, and that was helping to uh-huh. expose your name as well. Okay. Yeah. And and what about like having a hit song, like personally, like you did... Um, uh, with You Were On My Mind, did that change things for you as far as like people wanting you to write songs for them? And, and No, no, I've never been someone who wrote songs for somebody else. I always write for myself. Okay, so yeah, so this hit song I mean, I love it when out. somebody else does them, but... So the hit song comes out and it, and I mean, financially it must have been a bit of a boost for you. Well, um, yeah, except, but, you know, I didn't even know that they'd recorded it until... Really? Ian and I were playing out in California and we were driving up the Pacific Coast Highway to Vancouver yeah. and we heard it on the radio and we nearly drove off the road. <laughs> that's crazy. So they never contacted you or anything? No. They just did it? No. Wow. That's no, not... and those were the days too when publishers kept 100% of publishing. Yeah. So they really had no... Uh, 
reason to contact us. <laughs> right. Do you remember that second album? Would that have been done pretty much in a similar vein to the first album with, you know, probably in the Masonic Temple and things It like wasn't that? in the Masonic Temple. I, I, you know, I'm a little hazy on precisely where we did what in those days. I know we recorded in the Manhattan Towers ballroom. Okay. It's an old hotel that had a big ballroom and, and Vanguard would record there. They'd throw up a few uh, canvas drapes and they were kind of into the whole like uh, repurposing large rooms for recording. Yeah, well, they had always done that with classical music. You see, oh, I that see. was their that was their main thing. Okay. Um, and would they wheel in a bunch of gear for these sessions, or was it all like planted there permanently? Oh no, they they would uh, they would bring it in. Okay. So you'd arrive. And it was, I would say, pretty primitive. Their idea of stereo in those days was to put my voice on one speaker and Ian's voice on the other. I can hear that, yeah. Like, it's very much like you're in the left, he's in the right. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. Like, it kind of gives you a real, there's definitely like a sound to it. Um, yeah, well, I, people liked it, too, because they could learn my harmony parts or they could learn the guitar parts. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> everything was so separate. Yeah. Was that a creative decision at all, or was it just a straight-up Oh, up no, I think they didn't know thing? any better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and would those records have come out in mono as well, or were they all just... I, I don't remember. Yeah, because they do have a have a definite hard-panned sound, which I think is unique in that for yeah. that time period. But Yeah, that... I mean, I, I certainly have no apologies for those recordings. I think they're great. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember who was producing those first couple records? Well, the first couple were were produced by Vanguard. I don't know if we really had a producer. There wasn't a guy there, like no, no, just really the engineer and really record live off the floor, you know. Wow! So there was wow, that's crazy because I thought I would have thought no that, overdubs. I can tell you that. Yeah, right. So usually in those days, I would have thought there would have been some guy at least from the label, like kind of like an A and R guy at least, or was there just nobody around? It was just you and the well, engineer. Well, you know, I honestly don't remember. Uh, Maynard Solomon might have been there. Uh huh. The you know he and his brother owned the label. Yeah, you guys made a couple records. They they did really well. Um, then. Uh, around, I don't know if it's like your third or fourth album you, you did, um, uh, I, I don't know if you did more than one, but you did Early Morning Rain, the Gordon Lightfoot tune. Um, yeah, well, we always record people's material before they were known. I mean, the same with Joni Mitchell. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, were they people that you would known from? We all, truthfully, we were writing at that point, and, and, and we were still recording some traditional stuff. Yeah. But we both had the feeling that after a while, what you write may have a certain sameness to it. Okay. And that it was always interesting to add something else to the mix, something by another writer. Right. So you were keeping it, keeping that input coming in from, from other writers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what was your relation to people like Joni Mitchell and Gordon Lightfoot? Like, obviously, they were Canadian, and there must be some tie-in there, or were they just great well, writers uh, that you knew? Again, we were on the road most of the year at that point. And mm-hmm. if we ran into people, it was probably in an airport or, yeah. you know, some club. It was really, you know, uh, we would hear um, tapes and, and that sort of thing, but it wasn't really a social scene. Okay. Doing covers of those tunes, though, was it some tie to doing a Canadian song at all, or were they just strictly no, like No, we just, just thought they were songs? good songs. Yeah. As your output increased, were you guys starting to play more theaters and larger venues as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, we were starting to play, uh, you know, small auditoriums and, yeah. and gradually moving on to some bigger ones. We actually got to play in Town Hall and in uh, New York and 
on your own, like as as the headliner yeah. of the night. Yeah, that must yeah, have been yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Yeah, uh, what were some <laughs> of the other surreal? In fact, <laughs> <laughs> so by the time you started making like play one more, I I really dig that record too. It, it's got like a I wouldn't say like full band production, but it's definitely like pushing a bit more in that direction. And I guess that was a bit of the sign of the times with with folk and rock starting to mix a little bit, although you guys were pretty on the cutting edge of that. Yeah, that... and, and um, um, country rock, too, in a way. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is before any of that existed, but but yeah. was that something that you were comfortable with, sort of artistically well, it, shifting? I don't know how conscious it was. Okay. You know, it just seemed to work at the time. And, and when you write, you call on all of your influences. Yeah. And uh, we had pretty broad influences, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, were you playing with other musicians in the band live at that time, or was it just you and Ian? We usually had a, a guitar player. We had some great guitar players. Okay, who who would have gone through your band at that? Well, point? John Harold was the first one who okay. probably he played on the early Ian and Sylvia stuff. Yeah, uh, Monty Dunn, uh-huh. David Ray. Oh, really? Yeah, David played with us for a long time before he played with Gordon. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Uh, or, he, sorry, he played with us after he played with Gordon. He left Gordon to play with us. Oh, Gordon really? never quite forgave us for that. <laughs> really? Got in a little trouble? <laughs> Not really. I'm just just making a joke. Now, sometime in the late 60s, I can't find much out about this, but I, I know there was some kind of um, CBC TV show that you were involved in, was it a regular thing or was that just sort of a special that was happening? Well, there was various television things, but, but most of it was later. We, we certainly did television. One of the great advantages of being Canadian is that you actually got television experience. Right. Because there weren't that many Canadian stars. Yeah, right. And the CBC would have loved you guys. Yeah, yeah. So it, there were various appearances on various shows and, and a couple of specials. And, and, uh, so, uh, that was very useful so that when we came to do shows like the Hootenanny shows in the States mm-hmm. and, you know, we appeared on the Carson show and, and Dick Cavett. Oh, you did, eh? Wow. Cool. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and, and Steve Allen, matter of fact. Wow. But we knew how television worked, you know. Right. You'd had, you'd had that under your belt already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was there much? There must have been a big difference, though, between doing, say, the Carson show or, or the, or, or you know, any of those big U.S. network shows and the CBC productions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was because uh, you'd get to do more for the CBC. You do one song on on one of those uh, evening talk shows. You right. do one song, and the CBC would have like a whole concert or or, or, or three or four songs, songs whatever. Yeah, yeah. depending. Right. Okay. But you never moved back to Toronto at that point. I didn't know. Okay. Now, I don't know what the chronology of it, but at some point you moved to Nashville around that time. Um, we didn't move to Nashville. We started recording in Nashville. Oh, okay. So you were just spending time here making records. Yes. So that record, Nashville, uh, which came out, I don't know, 67 or something like that, I, I uh-huh. guess. Um, would that have been done with like the whole... A team crew of players that were here in Nashville, or was that some of your some of them? Guys? Some of them. That first one, because okay. what we what we did was um, we wanted to record in Nashville, and and they, they we had a very peculiar setup uh-huh. with uh, with Vanguard. Their 
contract was really wonky so that it could be read that either we'd given them one album too many or we still owed them one. <laughs> Depending on how you read it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and rather than fight it, um, we um, got a release from mm-hmm. them to do one album. Okay. You know, uh, they're, they're thinking we'd make a huge hit with that album, then they'd have us for another album. Okay. And uh, so we decided the way to go about that was to try the various studios in, in Nashville. Okay. Uh, which we did. We did the, that album in three or four studios, including the old RCA studio, the old Elvis The studio, studio A. Yeah. Cool. That's such a great room. Um, do, yeah. Do you remember? Fact, Jerry, Reed, Jerry Reed played on those sessions. No way. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, there's a the two albums and they're kind of mixed up in my mind. There's the Ian and Sylvia Nashville and then there's the great Speckled Bird album. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's a little confusing to me, too. So, like, I know Great Speckled Bird is, like, its own thing, but was that, like, an artistic line in the sand or, like, a contractual thing? You wanted to be a band rather than under your names all of a sudden? How did that work? Well, we had the stuff that we recorded on the Nashville album, we really liked the feel of. Right. It's a killer record. And and we kind of decided that uh, we, we didn't want to tour unless we could sound like that. Okay. So we started expanding the band. Yeah. And so the anything after that sort of grew out of that mindset. Okay. So like were you bringing on Amos Garrett and and um Well, Amos was playing guys? with us. I, yeah. In Ian and Sylvia. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where did you meet Amos? I've done a bunch of touring with Amos. Well, and he stuff. he was He's living a... in Toronto. We've known him for ages. Okay. So you brought him he, down. He had a, a kind of a jug band called the Dirty Shames here. Right. And uh, we had known him for ages. You know, it was just, just on the same scene. Okay. And who would have produced those Nashville records? Do you remember? Various people. Okay. And Depending on I'd what have studio to look at you the, were in. I'd have to look at the covers too. And there's a great version. I think it's on the Nashville record of This Wheel's on Fire. Um, uh-huh. Did you... Well, we, we were sent the original basement tape. Oh, really? Okay, so that, yeah, because those were done, the basement tapes were kind of done to, like, flog new Dylan material, right? To Absolutely. Pub, as, from the publisher. And received, we received one of the first copies. As a matter of fact, I, I sold it recently for quite a large amount of money. Really? Awesome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that so, and, 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 and early acetates of, of Dylan songs. Okay, and, we, and that was from those sessions, like from the basement tape sessions, they were sending out these songs. Well, the acetates was, were much earlier. Okay. This Wheels on Fire, I think, is that, that's a Rick Danko Dylan song? Is that what the... Possibly. A, I, we, yeah. I don't know if we stopped to read who the writer was. <laughs> <we> just, <laughs> um, did you know the band guys at all? Like, I, I, oh, I, of course. Yeah, I, they played with Roddy Hawkins here. We used to go and see them all the time. Um, in, in Toronto, you mean? Like back yeah. in, in the early days? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wicked. Yeah. yeah, he sure knew how to put a band together. He sure did. Yeah. Uh, did you hang out with those guys? I guess they were touring. Oh, yeah. Now, but, yeah, more but Ian than me. Okay. So what do you remember, like, if just in general, if you had to think about the difference between recording at that time in Nashville with some of the cats from around here and, and also, you know, guys like Amos, uh, compared to the records that you were making in New York? What, what well, you know, the as... Area Code 615 album? Yeah. Yeah, well, those guys, we all, we used all of them. And the reason they formed Area Code 615 is because they liked what we were doing with really? country. You were like the four forerunners of country rock. Like this is before the the birds had done it. This is really yeah. No, nobody was putting this stuff out yet. Like was it? 
Was, no. Did it feel like you were doing something new, or were you just like, yeah, this is what we're doing? We're just doing what we did, you know. <laughs> That's cool. I don't know if we were conscious of creating a genre. <laughs> were you pretty blown away by the level of musicianship that oh, these the guys had? the playing was fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, Norbert Putnam and Kenny Buttry and, and right. Weldon Myrick. And, was Pig Robbins uh, around? Was fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was playing piano? Yeah. Wow. Would those records have been done really quickly, like in traditional Nashville style, where they're just like reading off number charts and you're you're running them down a couple times and done? Or were they albums well, that yes, you were... Well, yes and no. Okay. They, they had a lot of freedom, you know, and that yeah. was always our, our mode of operation was freedom within a framework. Okay. Like, did you have to develop that at all with the musicians or was it something that just came really easily? Well, they're they're such good players. I mean, yeah, they kind of had a they kind of had a sound of their own. I'll tell you a wonderful story when we worked with with the the, the one or two cuts we did with Jerry Reed in the RCA studio. Yeah, please. Um, we had a, a producer from New York. God, I can't remember his name. Again, I could find it for you. Anyway, uh, Jerry Reed had ripped off this amazing, amazing <laughs> solo. Yeah. Right. And the producer said. Uh, Gee, that was great, Jerry. Could you play that again? And Jerry says, play what? <laughs> <laughs> and and was he touring with you as well at that point? Or was he just like a, oh, a no, session guy no, no. that was there? No, he just played a couple of cuts. The, okay. Yeah. What and about- as a matter of fact, it was quite, quite, it was quite funny because, uh, you know, people would drop into the studio because they knew there were sessions and there were interesting sessions going on. They'd drop in and Ronnie Stoneman came by one time. Yeah. And she looked out into the, into the, from the booth into the room said, is that Jerry Reed? He says, I like him. <laughs> he said, well, what did she say? Uh, he's squirrely, she said. <laughs> I wonder what that meant. <laughs> well. <laughs> Was Chet Atkins around at all? Uh, oh, yes. Did, mm-hmm. you, did you meet him and work with him at that time? Yeah, now I'm trying to remember if he played. No, he didn't. Um, Bradley. Um, Harold Bradley. It's Harold. Yeah. Yes. Harold Bradley. Yeah. Yes. Harold played on, on some, something too, I think. Oh, that's heavy. Oh, we had wonderful players. We enjoyed it thoroughly. And, and would they, like, how long would it take to make one of those records, do you think? Two or three days or more like a well, couple of weeks? Well, the basic recording in, uh, you know, would probably be about three days. Okay. And then maybe another couple of days for any overdubs. Would you be overdubbing your vocals, or was that all being done live? Gosh, I don't remember. Um, but do you remember, like, even if you were doing, like, scratch vocals or something, do you remember being out on the floor with the whole crew at, at some point? Oh, sure, yeah. Oh, okay. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's how they like to, to work. It's just, it's it's amazing yeah. to hear about those kind of sessions at that time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's a great way to work. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, in terms of, of the feel. Yeah. And so... The, this kind of evolves into Great Speckled Bird, and, and you make those great records, and Amos and Ben Keith are on them. Uh, now, yeah. was, was that kind of a touring... Ben Keith we met when we campaigned for Lyndon Johnson in 64. Really? Where was that? Well, Johnson was running against Goldwater, as you know. Yeah. And um, we, uh, his, his daughter, Linda Bird, was a big Ian and Sylvia fan, used to come and see us in Washington all the time. Okay. And really wanted us to be part of the campaign. And, and so we actually whistle-stopped with Lady Bird Johnson all down through Arkansas. Really? And uh, Farron Young mm-hmm. was the other act on, on that. Amazing. 
on that tour, and and Ben was playing with Farron. Oh, he was. Okay, so you met him then, and and kind yeah. of hit it off or whatever. And he played with us for quite a while, actually, before he went to Neil Young. Right, and he was living in Nashville, I guess. So he played on those on the Nashville record, or was he not uh-huh. there for those? Okay, yeah. Um, and and was the Great Speckled Bird that lineup? Was that touring a lot? Yeah, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, and and you guys were playing more like. Like, were you doing rock clubs and stuff at that point, or theaters, no, or well, what kind of... just whatever clubs would have us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was some resistance to uh, Ian and Sylvia moving more toward, you know, electric into country. Really? Because the folky fans were kind of diehard, you know? Sure, yeah. Well, Dylan had his fair share of that as well. Yeah. Um, uh, I was I was there when he did, did the uh, thing with... Uh, were you? Uh, the Butterfield Band at, at, Newport. at Newport. Yeah, I was there. What do you remember about that show? Was that was it as electrifying as they say? It was pretty loud, right? It was pretty awful, actually. You, you could you even hear Dylan? It was pretty. Not really. No, <laughs> they they hadn't really rehearsed. Yeah. And they didn't really. I mean, the Newport sound people didn't really have the the knowledge to handle that. Right. That sound. So it was like a dog's breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and people were naturally pissed. Yeah, and and Dylan was probably encouraging them to play louder and harder. Oh yeah, because right? that yeah, was yeah. His it, soul. It, it, and and a matter of fact, I was amazed that when the the recording came out recently, you know, yeah. the remastered recording of yeah. that, yeah, that it actually sounded great because it didn't at the time. Right. Yeah. Probably on stage, it was it was at least cohesive more than it would have been translating out into the audience. Oh yeah. So did you guys run into that whole thing of like getting booed and yelled at for playing electric or was that it, not in some so of, much more, more the Canadian venues than the, than really? the U S ones. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, they wanted they were, the old Ian and Sylvia back. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The, as a matter of fact, I remember one concert we did in London, Ontario where people came in and sat down and the minute they saw a steel on the stage, they got up and walked out. <laughs> oh, that nasty pedal steel ripping our ears yeah, apart right. <laughs> sell out sell out um who was playing drums in that band oh who did we have or did you have drums? a bunch of different guys playing we did have we, billy mundy was one. Oh wow okay yeah uh indie smart like that's a pretty funky band like when i hear you guys on like the festival express that's a killer yeah. killer band that version of cc rider I, I can't even remember if that made it into the movie or not but the it did yeah it's, it's up there what can you tell me about that whole festival express thing was it as debauched as it seems or what was well what? it was so chaotic <laughs> i mean it really yeah. was we were we were being um sort of followed across the country by something called the may 4th movement which was which what was some sort of radical movement about you know music belongs to the people and music should be free to the people right and considering the people that were on that show yeah you know i think the ticket for the weekend was 12 dollars <laughs> and that would get you the show everybody in the- Right, in the town that you're in. It wouldn't be like, yeah. you couldn't like follow the, well, I guess you could follow the train if you wanted to. So, and it was all Canadian stops? Sorry? Was it all Canadian stops? Yes. Yeah, um, we were supposed to go right out to Vancouver, but it stopped in Calgary because we the, the promoters ran out of money. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you'd get into the station, like it's not really clear on the movie. It just seems like it's party and then show, party, show, party, show. But was there like any method to it or was it just kind of like party and show? Well, the idea was for everybody to, to, uh, 
get used to each other on the train, which obviously we did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that the shows would be that much better. Yeah, I totally get that. Because there'd be all this cross-pollination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where the new writers of the Purple Sage met Buddy Cage, who was sure. playing Steel with us. Right. Oh, that's Buddy Cage with you. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was, I thought, yeah, the, I thought in the video that I saw was, it was Sneaky Pete playing with you, but I guess. No, Buddy okay. Cage. Buddy Cage. Okay. I mean, it, it, I, it's hard to say who was playing on that particular thing because everybody People joined were in. Because that, like, yeah. the thing that struck me about that, like, in particular, C.C. Ryder, because I just watched it recently, it's like you're up there like sort of channeling Grace Slick or something in a way. And, and there's like Jerry Garcia's up there and, and um, I think Paul Kantner I saw up there and, and Rick Danko and like, but it doesn't seem like a messy jam. It seems like a tight and Amos is up there. Amos and, and uh, um, Jerry Garcia are trading licks and it's like really tight and funky. Like it's good. Um, So was it like, were you, was it a rehearsed thing at all? It was totally Totally. off the cuff. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Delaney Bramlett too, I think was up there. Right. Yeah. What was the train part of it like for you? Like, was it, was it? Well, see, I didn't drink then. Mm -hmm. And so you were the there's odd, a lot the, of drinking going on along with other stuff. Out. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I didn't really spend a lot of time in the music cars, just would wander through occasionally. I mean, as a matter of fact, um, uh, my friend Jackie Burroughs, who worked for, for Albert Grossman's office, she's actually quite a famous Canadian actress, but at that point she was working for Albert Grossman's office and was kind of his rep on the train. Okay. And she, yeah. was, she was married to, um, oh, God, uh, guitar player loving spoonful john sebastian uh, no she, she, she said her memory of me in the train was sitting in a corner reading a book <laughs> <laughs> well you survived and many yeah, many of well, the, many of those people didn't so you must have been yeah. on to something <laughs> well that thing that they say about anybody who who uh, is nostalgic about the, the 60s doesn't remember <laughs> right yeah, yeah. Um, so with that record, that Great Speckled Bird record, or or one of them, um, Todd Rundgren produced it. What, do you remember yeah. working with him, and, and what stands out about working with a guy like well, that? Well, Albert was working with him. Oh, okay. And, he was managing him? Yeah. Okay. And so uh, Todd, well, <laughs> when Nashville beheld Todd, it mm-hmm. was quite interesting. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that must and have been a bit of And he brought with him one of the GTOs as a girlfriend. Really? Yes. So that's quite a scene for Nashville. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, did they, did they, were they okay with it, or did they give him a hard time, or what was the deal with that? Well, it, I, I think that we were being watched rather closely. Okay. You know, for the, the, the Nashville police regarding any kind of drug activity. Yeah. Not that they found anything, but uh, uh-huh. I think there certainly was interest there. What do you remember about him as a producer? Like, was he different in any way uh, as far as direction for, for you guys as the performers that you hadn't experienced before? Not really. Uh, you know, he seemed to certainly seemed to know what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I guess I would have remembered if there'd been any problems. Mm-hmm. But it was smooth sailing. That's cool. Yeah, he yeah. Made, he made some great records. So yeah, I'm a, yeah. I'm a fan of his. I'm always curious yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, interesting guy and very musical. I mean, it's it's really, I think for me, the best experiences I've had with producers are producers who are also musicians. Yeah, because they kind of get 
things like phrasing and and the melodic ideas that you may have, I guess. That yeah. Would, that would be a big difference. Yeah. After Ian and Sylvia was done and Great Speckled Bird was done, you've made a bunch of records, but they are like pretty spread out in time. You've taken some yeah. big chunks in between those. Um, yeah. Uh, is that more just to like become a bit of a normal human being after so many years of Well, of I had a kid, you and, know. <laughs> yeah. So you were just trying to pull off the road and, and just have yeah. a semblance of a normal life at that point. Yeah. yeah. What about these days? Um, I know that quartet takes up uh, a chunk of your time, and that's a great... Yeah, it's kind of a separate but equal thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And and you guys have made a bunch of records over the last few yes, years. Yeah, yeah. We we had a, a year and a half ago, we had our 20th anniversary as a group. Really? Yeah. That's a powerful bunch of voices there. Yeah, it uh, it works pretty well. I should I should send you the most recent stuff. Uh, I think I might have the so the, the most double recent... album Rocks and Roses. No, I don't have that one. That's an interesting one because it's it's uh, twelve new tunes and then twelve songs that are we are personal picks for from the previous records. And how do you like with that group where there's four singers? Do you equally do the vocal arranging and stuff like that, or how does that work? Generally speaking, uh, the person who, who wrote the song sings lead. Yeah. Uh, I generally sing bass. Right. Which is more fun than anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have a nice three-part harmony machine going yeah, on. Yeah, we're all natural harmony singers. I mean, I, I truly adhere to the idea that harmony singers are born, not made. I would agree with that. And will you be making another quartet record in the near future, or is that... Well, this one's about three years old now, so I guess we need to start thinking about <laughs> doing another one. <laughs> uh, what about solo record? Like, what about a Sylvia Tyson record? Is that ever I something I haven't that... recorded in probably 15 to 20 years, something like that. Is it that long since you've made a yes, solo record? Yes, it really is, yeah. Holy cow. I mean, I've got material. Yeah. You know, but the problem, one of the problems is that when I get a good song, quartet wants to do it. Right. <laughs> they, <laughs> they steal all your material. Right. Uh, but I, I have probably a dozen pieces of material that I'll eventually get around to, to recording. What would make you go and make a record at this point? Well, as I say, having the material and, and somehow getting up the energy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the money to say nothing of that, you know. Yeah, of course, that's tricky these days. It's... Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd love to record again. I, I I as I say, I certainly have the material, but I I, it's getting myself organized to yeah to do it. And how do you feel about performing these days? Like, do you still enjoy the process and traveling and all that? Does it is it pretty getting from place you? to place is a plain drag. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, but you know, when I'm actually on stage, it's a different story. You still love that part of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting for me because I'm not a natural performer. If I didn't write, I probably wouldn't perform. Really? Yeah. Why? What makes you say you're not a natural performer? Well, I'm not somebody who always had to get up there and sing and dance for the folks, you know. Right. So you don't feel like an entertainer as much as like you just have songs. That you I'm a singer songwriter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I get that. Do you still feel the drive to get out and perform, or is it just something that you do because? You like playing in well, the band I get and... to be pretty much of a brat at this age, you know, I do what I feel like. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I've heard uh, I, I talked to John Hammond a while ago, and he he basically said the same thing. It's just like, no, I'm just gonna pick only the gigs I want to do, and everyone else can yeah. go, go away. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a cool point to be at, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I say, I'd, I'd, I really, uh, I'd, I'd really like to record again, but just it's getting it together is daunting for me at this point. <laughs> Yeah, I understand that. It's great that you 
were able to take the time. I really appreciate you talking to me about this stuff. Well, I've enjoyed it, actually. I'm memory lane and all that. I'm not terribly nostalgic. Uh, uh, you know, I'm past yeah. the prologue as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I get that. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. But, you know, you've been in, involved in so much interesting stuff and, like, really, yeah. really in at ground zero for a lot of the music that... Yeah, that I wish I remembered more. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Sylvia. Uh, thanks for taking the time and hope to uh, run into you soon somewhere. Hope so. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Sylvia Tyson. It was great to speak with her. I will be back next week with another gripping and chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.